Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the third Youth Forum of the 2021-2022 school year. I'm Praveen Kumar, a senior at Hawkins School and the chair of the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation on navigating missing persons investigations in the United States. Every year, over 540,000 people go missing. The Gabby Petito case created a media frenzy resulting into a deeper look into how missing persons cases in the United States are handled. Most glaring was the ongoing, disproportionately less attention given to missing persons involving people of color. The first 72 hours of a missing persons case are the most crucial, after which the volume of clues, evidence, and witness accounts slow to a trickle, severely impeding cases with less attention. Further, missing persons cases are often complicated by sex trafficking, kidnapping, and drug-related crimes involved in addition to the search up for the missing person, as well as the runaway cases often receiving less attention due to the misconception they are in less danger than other missing persons. We often ask the question, can more be done? In what ways can we make sure that every case receives the same attention? Okay. Our panelists today to discuss this include Sylvia Cullen, an activist and co-founder of the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults, Georgina DeJesus, an activist and co-founder of the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults, Chief John Majoy, Newburgh Heights Police Department and President of the Board of Directors of the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Adults and Children, and Jomel Spurlock, Director of Victim Services for Human Trafficking Initiative, Crime Victim Services, and the Office of Ohio Attorney General, Dave Yost. As will all City Club forums, we welcome audience questions. You can text your questions to 330 541-5794. That is 330-541-5794. Or tweet them, tweet them to us at City Club Youth and we'll try to work them in. Here to guide our discussion is Youth Forum Council member Abigail Orisano, a senior. Abigail, I turn the forum over to you. Thank you, Praveen, for that introduction. To those tuning in, we are so glad to have you here for our final Youth Forum of 2021. We're especially excited to hear what our panelists have to say about missing person cases in the United States. There's a lot to be said about missing people, how they go missing, um, when it's discovered they're missing, but sadly, some are never found and too few are able to come home. Either way, the victim and the community are left um, wounded and never the same. This phenomenon is not a respecter of persons. It affects people from various age groups, different socioeconomic statuses, and ranging racial demographics from every corner of the country. Yet very few cases actually become national headlines. Uh, Jamel, we'll start with you. When a case catches national attention, there's a very high likelihood that the missing person will be found alive, found sooner, or the abductors may start making mistakes. How and why do certain cases capture the nation's consciousness? Um, thank you for, for shifting that to me. Uh, just so everybody knows, my expertise is in uh, human trafficking specifically, so I'll do my best to answer this question. Um, you know, I think it just, it, there's a lot to be said about the details of a situation where it's happening, the circumstances surrounding it, all those kinds of stuff that's going on and the, um, manpower and people that are able to be engaged in working that type of case 
and also where that information leads, right? So for some situations, it may take law enforcement where they are seeing things happening more in a centralized area. And depending on the information that they're able to gather, it may be that there's, you know, state lines being crossed or county lines being crossed or what have you. So it just kind of depends um, on the circumstances of that particular case is what I would say. And you gave an example, I think it was um, Praveen earlier about the Gabby Petito case and that there are certain things that hit the headlines a little bit more than others. And there's many times where there are people that are missing um, that don't look like Gabby Petito, right? And so just the having the conversation of just that anybody who's missing that life, that person is valuable, right? And we should all be talking about it and just being really intentional on how we can spread the word that there is an individual who um, is, is who's currently missing for whatever the reasons are and that we can all just be aware and be intentional and keep our eyes and our ears open. And Chief Majoy, what changes once a case becomes a national headline? Um, how does it change the way it's solved and approached by law enforcement? Well, I think in a case like that, it's gonna get, uh, when it gets national attention, it's really important for law enforcement to have all the resources in place because you're going to get tips and tips and they're going to be rolling in from all across the country. And we saw this, uh, there was a tragic case uh, in Port Clinton uh, just about a, maybe a little bit of a year ago where a young boy went missing and um, he was later found deceased, which is really tragic, but uh, it, it made national headlines and there was a lot of emphasis put on it. And uh, what happened was the, the federal government, the FBI and some other federal agencies got involved in it. Uh, simply just to help local law enforcement because the majority of police departments across the country are not large agencies. And so they have fewer than 100 officers, most of them fewer than 50, and they just don't have the resources to take all these phone calls. And again, that one tip might be the one that's going to give that information. So when it does go viral like that, we have to be prepared. And, and this is what we do in Amber Alerts. We prepare agencies so when they issue an amber alert to just let them know that their phones are going to start ringing a lot and they're going to get a ton of tips coming in so uh in, in terms of, of these cases um you know i, I like uh, her response to that because um some of them gain more notoriety than others and it's really kind of hard to predict when those are going to happen uh, but when they do happen it's really critical for law enforcement to be ready for that And speaking of Amber Alerts, uh, the sad reality of it is every 40 seconds, a child goes missing in the US. The Amber Alert system was created to help get the word out about missing people. Uh, it was named after the late nine-year-old Amber Hagerman, who was abducted and murdered in Texas in 1996. Amber's parents quickly reported the abduction to authorities and the media, but their efforts were to no avail. Today, all 50 states um, have an Amber Alert system implemented in their states. And we all get these notifications on our phones. It will ding for some time and we might silence it or turn off our phones depending on where we are or what we're doing or how much in it inconveniences us. What can we do, uh, Gina, what can we do to ensure Amber Alerts are taken seriously? And how can we raise their effectiveness? I think probably that would be more of a question for John Majoy because in Northeast Ohio, John Majoy is actually the man that facilitates and um, 
is in charge of the Northeast Ohio Amber Alert. So I would say we would want to kick it to him because he is absolutely the expert in, in that field of uh, Amber Alerts. So what I can say is just a couple things. Uh, the, the origin of the Amber Alert uh, is very accurate. Uh, so the Amber Alert stands for Amber, um, America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. And that's the acronym along with Amber Hagerman's case. And so in Northeast Ohio, we have a committee that comprises nine counties that we oversee for Amber Alerts. And uh, what we've done is we've streamlined the process for Amber Alerts for these agencies because police officers go their, their whole entire careers and they, you know, they qualify in their weapon, they go to training, but most police officers don't have an Amber Alert issue. Like for example, myself, I've been doing this for over 30 years. I've never been directly involved in an Amber Alert from the department in which I am the, the chief or an officer for that matter. And so we want to best prepare our officers for that. But we have a system in place that is very unique. It's a one of a kind in the whole entire country. We're very, very, very effective. Uh, we can reach about 1.2 million people in about 20 minutes, uh, which is really super fast and it's a lot of people. And so the message that we want to get out there is that there's strict criteria for an Amber Alert. You know, as you said, you know, children and people, they go missing every 40 seconds, which is, you know, a, a pretty challenging statistic as it, by itself. Um, however, if you were to get all those alerts on your phones, you're going to shut them off because you're going to get tired of hearing them. For an Amber Alert, you got to have the four criteria that meets uh, the, the needs for an alert. So in other words, Number one is the child has to be under 18 years of age. That's very, very simple. Number two is that there has to be uh, a good physical description of the individual who's involved in the uh, alleged abduction. In other words, if a student doesn't get off the bus and they need their seizure medication, that's not an Amber Alert. There has to be credible information for law enforcement. And the third one is, is that the law enforcement agency feels as though the child is in danger. Uh, so in other words, uh, if a person's a runaway, they could be endangered of like becoming a victim of human trafficking or something like that. But that may not rise to the occasion of a life or death uh, type of a situation where there's an abduction. Uh, because if someone abducts a child, uh, you know, there's, it's not good for that situation. It could have a really bad outcome. And so, you know, there's an emergency to that. And the last one is, is that the, the agency feels as though the, the broadcast will help locate the child. And so th this is the strict criteria. So this is why your cell phones don't go off every day when there's someone that goes missing. In fact, it's very rare. In the greater Cleveland area, in the last seven and a half years, we've had, uh, I believe, 34 successful Amber Alerts. Uh, successful, meaning that they've all had successful recoveries. Well, where there was not a death or a fatality involved in it, which is a very good track record. And so the message to the public is that, and everybody listening, is that you are the eyes and ears. You are the assets to the Amber Alert because the law enforcement is going to be chasing all the leads that we get. People are calling in tips and whatnot, but they're getting tips from you guys. And you guys are the ones that are calling things in and you see something and you say something. And this is the part that's very important is if you do see something that you say something, uh, you know, whatever degree that it is and let us decide how important that is and then we'll investigate that. So you certainly don't want people to silence their phones. Uh, we realize that you might get woke up in the middle of a nap or in the middle of the night or, or some other time you might be inconvenienced, but 
I will tell you as a parent that I would want to get woken up any time of the day or night uh, for, for my child and, and any parent or any other individual would feel the same way. Um, that way we can bring this child home safely. Many of us know uh, John Walsh. He was the longtime host and of the iconic television show, America's Most Wanted. His son, Adam, was abducted while shopping with his parents in a local department store. Adam's parents launched a massive hunt for their son, but sadly, um, they never, he was found beheaded and they never located his body. In the aftermath of the crime, Adam's father, John Walsh, channeled his grief into advocacy and work for crime victims. He founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and he became host of America's Most Wanted. We see a similar parallel in John Walsh and Gina and Sylvia, who co-founded Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults. This question is open to everyone, but for those who have, for those people who have not been directly impacted by a missing case like Gina or Sylvia, how can they be motivated to become champions for missing people? Um, I, I guess Gina and I can answer that, um, or at least start. Uh, John is very near and dear to us. He's a, a very good friend of the family, as the entire Walsh family is, and um, they do great work, and they've grown exponentially. Um, over the years. So when they say that they're a national center, they really are. And they have a clearing house for calls and that kind of thing. Um, they have several regional offices throughout the country. And um, so what they do is much more high level now than what they did when they first started off the national center in their garage in Florida, which is where John and Ravey, um came up with the idea after um, Adam's murder. So I think for us, what we do is a little different in that, first of all, we're specifically working with families. So we will never impede the actual investigation. We'll be the conduit between the family and the investigative agency, but we are not involving ourselves in the actual case. We are there specifically for families. So by default, we're we're there for the missing person as well. But there are so many wonderful organizations in the city of Cleveland throughout the state and quite frankly, throughout the country, including the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children that we didn't see a need to replicate that service. But what we did see a need for was to be able to have a bricks and mortar building where families could come for support, immediate support, as soon as that person goes missing or when they think they actually need support. And the great thing about our organization is it is a bricks and mortar building so they can come to our office or we can provide them information about something so simple as how do you make a flyer to how do you navigate social media to how do you try to get on regular media to get the case out there. And then, again, as I said, we're the conduit for law enforcement so we can help them navigate that as well. And then we do things like self-care because we think we're the experts. Uh, we know something about looking for somebody who's missing. And self-care is equally as important. And that means, you know, are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you taking a shower? If you have to go back to work, are you? Are you taking care of your other kids if, if you have children? So it's all those things. 
Gina's perspective is different because Gina wasn't looking for Gina. We were. Gina was trying to keep herself safe and alive to come home. So her perspective is is really different. But she and she also brings a, a, a kind of a unique story to the families. And and her story is always about hope. Ours is we we know something about how to navigate this. But Gina's perspective is I know something about what your family member who's missing is going to need while they're missing. And so, you know, I, I think of them as superpowers. We put those together and we think we've come up with something that's pretty wonderful for families. I would also add it is the only kind of organization in the country as well. Um, it, it, we collaborate with many other organizations throughout the city, throughout the state, and quite frankly, throughout the country, including NECMEC, which is the National Center for missing and exploited children. So um, we feel really good about what we're doing. And I would love to tell you we don't have any cases, but we've been really busy lately, which makes us sad, but also makes us know it's exactly why we need to exist. Um, in rare cases where these missing cases, they bubble up and receive lots of media attention. The nation is transfixed for months. Uh, cases like Adam Walsh's have resulted in measures like Code Adam, which is a powerful search tool for lost and potentially abducted children. Uh, it's designed to help establishments ensure that they have safety protocols in place to respond effectively to situations involving a missing child. Before Adam Walsh's kidnapping, this process of Code Adam did not exist. In that same vein, what other cultural changes that may not yet be actual laws, but could cause significant change, do you think need to be made? Is that for anybody or? Yes. Well, I, I guess I can start. We um, um, recently were awarded a grant through the Cleveland Foundation to actually work uh, with law enforcement. And we're really excited about that. And um, the reason that, that we're kind of uh, doing a collaborative effort with the Cleveland Foundation is because what we realize is, you know, you spoke about culturally how somebody goes missing and, and who that family is looks different, right? For each and every person. And John and myself and Gina recently went out to the Sandusky Police Academy. We do that once a year and, and we meet with the cadets and we talk about, you know, if, if you get a call and somebody's missing, here are some of the things that you can do just out of the gate to be sensitive. And cultural sensitivity is a really big thing. And um, I think that those are some of the things that we're targeting because everybody's different. You know, I talk, I can only talk about um, Puerto Ricans and probably not about all Puerto Ricans, but I know uh, culturally as a group where um, we emote, we have a lot of passion, we're, you know, we're loud. And, and when I remember when Gina had gone missing, it, you know, we were on top of each other and um, very vocal. But culturally, not everybody is that way, right? So how do you train, for example, police officers to be sensitive to that? And so those are some of the things that I think we're doing. And I think it is working out. I mean, don't you think so, John, when we, we talk to folks? I think that I would say law enforcement, at least the folks that we've dealt with, are very open to that. 
I, I can piggyback off of that. I think that it, it's very, very important uh, work that, that Cleveland Missing does. Um, but in terms of the police officers, you know, we need the police officers to understand that it, every case is an important case and uh, we, we can't disregard it or discount it. We have to give it our, our full 100% attention. And it's hard when you have all these other cases, but we have to continue to do that. And we have to understand the cultural differences of uh, our society. In, in some cultures, uh, they don't speak a whole lot. They may not say a whole lot. Whereas others, as Sylvia noted, uh, they might be a, a lot more vocal. And you know, if, if they're yelling at us because they're upset, they're not yelling at me as John as the person. If they're yelling at me because I'm John, the police officer, or in this case, the police chief. And we have to be an understanding of that. And, and we have to take these cases personally, not so much on the offensive side, but on the offensive side that we need to, to do everything we can. And so, you know, I'm supposed to go home at four o'clock, but if there's a, a missing persons case that needs my attention, I might be 10 o'clock. And if that's what we got to do, that's what we have to do uh, because it's really important because that life matters. And so uh, we like to make sure that law enforcement stays in tune to this, but also by giving them some tools. And I don't know what it's like to have a family member go missing. I've never experienced that. And I hope that I never have to. Uh, but I have somebody in the room right here with me who does, and they bring that perspective. And that's what helps keep some things in check. And this is what we can offer to families is some solace. Is, and that is that we're not going to give up on your family and do whatever it takes. And, and Gina is a survivor story, you know, and now she's turned that into an advocacy, you know, and there's a lot to learn off of that. And we're capitalizing on that and we're helping out families and, and we've impacted a lot so far. Uh, we've impacted law enforcement. Not only are we working with local law enforcement, we're working with state law enforcement, but also federal law enforcement. We work very closely uh, with the United States Marshal Service. And so uh, we, we have the ability to make this impact to, to, uh, to help families and, and again, to help law enforcement. If I could just add to that, um, as so I've been a victim advocate for 11 years. And um, coming from working uh, working in, uh, and walking alongside victims and survivors, um, just being intentional with if somebody comes in contact with someone who has been missing, right, or um, is trying to be present, just recognizing that there might be some trauma there, there might be some, you know, just how you approach someone, the words that you use, the physical touch that you might want to do, meaning very well of hugging or pulling or touching or whatever, how that can also be very triggering and can also re-traumatize someone who just kind of be mindful about that. And so is so when taking into consideration culturally, but also what has that person potentially experienced and just being, you know, asking first before even reaching out and hugging someone, right? Asking, is it okay for them? Would they be okay with receiving a hug? And they may say, actually, no, I give you a high five or we can just wave to each other or whatever. Just being mindful of that personal space is really important. Um, and also that um, as a community member, you know, we are not law enforcement or detectives, right? And so sometimes people want to hear all the details of what has happened to this person, where they have been, all those kinds of things. And just, again, we don't want to re-traumatize or re-victimize um, as well. And so just being mindful of those things is also super, super helpful. And so sometimes just being present in and of itself is, is, is greatly appreciated. 
I understand Ohio is one of the worst states for human trafficking. Jomel, can you explain why this is and what your department does to help combat this? Sure. Um, so I'm going to unpack this question um, in and of itself. Um, so bear with me here. And so many people may hear that Ohio is number four, number five in the nation. It's may even preface it as the worst state for trafficking. And so we're going to kind of dive into what that really means. And so what that what those numbers come in from is from the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is a national number that um, is run and governed by Polaris Project that, that hosts that National Human Trafficking Hotline. So any calls that come in to that national hotline are calculated. So when it comes down to whether it's a legitimate call of, you know, that somebody's able to say, hey, there's this person that's here with me right now, or I've seen these things and they're, you know, you see somebody say something, um, or if it's a victim or survivor themselves who's calling the hotline, this number, but this call also includes people who don't have a true understanding of the reality of trafficking. There's somebody who may even believe certain myths about trafficking. So when we see things um, in movies at times or on TV shows where trafficking equals, you know, there's a there's a kidnapping or, or an abduction or white vans or whatever the narrative might be, people who are calling, when they see that as well, they're also adding to those numbers, right? And so these numbers are also based on collectively all the other, all the other calls that have happened in other states. So for example, if there has been a hundred calls um, here in Ohio um, and 85 calls in Kentucky and uh, 79 calls in Virginia, do you see how like when it comes to that ranking, that's what that includes again and with all the different calls that have come in and not just that these are legitimate uh, calls. On top of that, Ohioans are starting to become more aware of the realities of trafficking too. So when you know more and you know better, you can also utilize the tools that are given to you and that are taught to you to, to, to help someone. So that's, so as we've been educating more and more people across the state, different coalitions, agencies, government um, entities, like where I work, um, shelters and housing and everything like that, as they are training and giving this information to community members and to people all around them, we're also becoming more aware. So you're also gonna see more calls coming in. And then another part of that is that when it comes to trafficking victims and survivors, there's usually a vulnerable population at the center, right? A vulnerable individual. And so when we think about Ohio and what exists here in the state of Ohio, what are some of our vulnerabilities? What are some things that people are experiencing? We have um, you know, substance abuse disorder that is pretty prevalent here in Ohio. Um, we have runaway youth. We've got poverty. We've got a whole bunch of different things that are happening. And so when you have vulnerable uh, individuals, those are who traffickers essentially will try to um, lure into, you know, relationship and connecting and that kinds of stuff as well. So that kind of all encompasses why we are ranked where we're ranked, but understanding what that ranking really means, right? And where Ohio is located in and of itself, um, we are in the Midwest, the beginning of the Midwest. I'm from South Florida is where I grew up my whole life. And so winter is always rough for me. Um, but where we're located, you can get to a, a lot of different uh, major metropolitan areas, you know, in uh, under a couple hours. Not that people are being transported in and out. We also have a lot of people that are coming into Ohio, right? And you can't have supply, which is what the, the victims would be that traffickers have. You can't have that without a demand, which means that we actually have a high demand of people who want to purchase sex from vulnerable individuals. 
And so as far as what our department is doing about it, um, so prior to 2019, uh, the Human Trafficking Initiative did not exist. Attorney General Dave Yost took office and wanted to create an in-house group that can actively work on this issue and help further um, the progress of what's happening across the state. And so he created this Human Trafficking Initiative, and it's made up of myself, uh, Jen Roush, who's our legal director, and also Emily Billman, who is our anti-trafficking coordinator as well. And what we get to do is we get to give trainings, uh, Human Trafficking 101 trainings, or advanced trainings for uh, law enforcement, prosecutors' offices, um, DV shelters, social workers, anybody who would listen. Okay, um, we've spoken to schools, Rotary clubs, um, AEP, Columbia Gas, you name it. And part of that is in order for us to have a stronger response here in the state of Ohio, that means we all have to be even more aware as well. And our awareness will then connect with the type of resources and services that are also available for victims and also holding those that are purchasing sex and traffickers who are exploiting victims, holding them accountable so that when they go to court and they're charged with certain crimes, you have a jury that's also intentionally informed of the realities of trafficking. I know I just threw a lot at you guys there, so I hope <laughs> that answered that question. And what specific things should we be, should people be looking out for um, when keeping an eye, an eye out for human trafficking? Um, how can we distinguish uh, just suspicious activity and something that is actually human trafficking? So that's, it's kind of layered, right? And so when we think about stranger danger, right? A lot of people who may even think about, you know, don't go to the mall because, you know, uh, you might be trafficked or, or kidnapped from the mall and that trafficking get equals trafficking, uh, sorry, kidnapping equals trafficking, which is not always the case at all. But coming down to what are our vulnerabilities, right? And so Maslow's hierarchy of needs lists out the different vulnerabilities that us as human beings have. And so you have someone who is experiencing a vulnerability with financial insecurity, food insecurity, um, housing insecurity, you know, even a sense of self of uh, belonging and, and love and, and care and safety, a trafficker is always going to come in as meeting that person's need. Where can they meet that need? How can they be able to be present and fulfill that need um, and build a rapport, build that relationship? So there's a lot of relationship building that is happening. Okay, and so from that perspective, we can have intentional conversations on what does healthy relationships look like, and not just romantic, but also friendships. Again, um, trafficking goes all across the board. Familial trafficking happens as well. What does a healthy home environment look like? Talking about a mental and emotional health, talking about um, who's a trusted adult in your area, figuring out what resources exist in your area. So when you do see something, you can be able to say something. So collectively, we can have this understanding and be able to connect with each other and look out for each other. That's, that's important. And outside of that, when you have somebody who is being currently victimized by a trafficker, they're going to be uh, monitored sometimes. They may not be able to come and go as they please. Um, and there are some similar dynamics um, as domestic violence many times where you have people say, why don't you just walk out the door or what have you? At the end of the day, there's power and control that is happening. There, there's these not necessarily physical elements all the time. And so understanding that if somebody is struggling with being able to leave as, as, as they please or the person may even have control over their documentation, right? How can they feel safe to be able to leave or to take that next step or to get a job or to go back home or whatever that might be if they don't have their ID, their passport, their documents, what have you. Um, there might be some uh, physical injuries. There might be some emotional things going on as well. Um, there might be, they may not be able to even tell you consistently, how do they get to this location? 
where are they living? Who are they living with? Who this person that's with them, who are they to them? Are they a father, a brother, a sister, a mom? You know what I mean? And so just kind of having those conversations um, and, you know, and being able to connect, hey, something didn't feel right. I'm going to just reach out. I'd rather have people reach out and call law enforcement, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline and say, this is what I just saw and experienced. Not sure what it is, but at least saying something because you never know what it's connected to. And lastly, we have six different uh, human trafficking task forces that exist uh, that are state task forces here in the state of Ohio. There is one in the Cuyahoga um, area. It's called the Cuyahoga Regional uh, Human Trafficking Task Force. So again, you have um, a lot of opportunities and uh, individuals that are working this issue every single day that you guys can be able to connect with. I wanted to take a moment to say a special thanks to you, Gina, for taking the time to talk about an issue that must be difficult for you. Um, not only is it behind you, but you have transformed it into a platform to save so many lives. Uh, so we highly commend you. I know I appreciate it. The Youth Council appreciates it. And I'm sure people who, the many people who have faced similar experiences appreciate it. And with that, we'll move on to our Q&A portion. Chelsea? Good afternoon. My name is Chelsea Leo, and I'm a senior at Hawkins School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. To review, today's Youth Forum Council features a discussion about how we currently navigate missing persons investigations in the United States and specifically in Ohio. Again, today's panelists are leading activists in this issue. From the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults, we have Sylvia Cohen, a co-founder, Gina DeHastis, co-founder, and Chief John Majoy, board president. And from the Department of Crime Victim Services of the Ohio Attorney General's Office and the Director of Victim Services for Human Trafficking Initiative, Jamel Spurlock. Our moderator is Abigail Orasanya, a senior at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. If you have any questions for any of our panelists, text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at City Club Youth, and we'll try to work them in. Now I will turn it back over to Abigail and our panelists to begin the first question. So our first audience question is, it must be a lot harder when the missing person is an immigrant or refugee, because isn't it often the case that a family doesn't want to draw attention to itself, so it waits too long to report? Chief Majoy. So yeah, that's a really good question. And, and thanks for the individual who asked that. And you know, again, as I said before, law enforcement has to look at these cases as an immediate thing and uh, you know, asking questions as far as why didn't they report it right away is really uh, secondary to bringing the loved one home. And so uh, it's, it's all part of the investigation because as we've seen, there have been some cases where children or are, are people are reported missing and the person that's reporting the missing is a perpetrator. And we, again, we've seen cases like that. Um, they're not as common, but they do, in fact, happen. And so this is why we look at an investigation 360 degrees. However, from the onset, the priority has got to be made towards trying to get as much information as we possibly can uh, to bring that individual home. And you know, there's all kinds of reluctancies out there that people might have. You know, they might have outstanding warrants. They might not have a valid driver's license 
uh, unpaid fines. Uh, th there's a number of reasons. And, uh, you know, we certainly don't want them to be afraid to call the police because the police are there to help. And so there, there's a, a number of reasons. And we really just need people to get beyond those and have the officers focus on the issue at hand. And that is to get attention drawn to that case. And so in the event that there is an illegal immigrant, you know, in, in our case here as, as a police department, that's that's really insignificant to us at the moment. What's more important is uh, the health and welfare of that individual. You know, is their life in danger? Uh, you know, a life is a life and whether they're illegal immigrant or not, or they're you know, they're, they're wanted by law enforcement for something else. It's still a life. And we have to keep our, our, our eyes on this and do everything we possibly can to help bring this individual home safely and, and set aside everything else. But again, uh, we was most we must remember is that, you know, it, the investigation has to be 360 degrees. And so unfortunately, sometimes we've seen where the family member or the person reporting is a perpetrator and we can't ignore that but from the get-go it's important that we don't automatically judge and put all of our eggs in one basket and assume that's what happened because we've also found cases where the family is uh, you know, appearing uh, as being involved or at fault when, when in fact they're not uh, and that, that can be very embarrassing you get some egg in the face of law enforcement so again we need to look at things wide open from all different angles and not jump to any conclusions. Our next question is, what is the impact of pop culture on missing persons cases? I know that the myth that you have to wait to report someone missing persists, for example. So in, in this particular case, I can respond. Uh, the, the myth of you have to wait until they're missing for 24 hours, that's not true. Uh, in, in fact, that couldn't be any further from the truth. And, you know, again, if, if someone doesn't get off of the school bus, uh, you know, and law enforcement gets a call on that, they're going to act on it. They're not going to be like, well, you know, wait till tomorrow. Uh, but again, so as a comparison, uh, we have a cold case from 1981 that's still open and a 17 year old boy went missing, was later found dead. And uh, back in 1981, there, there wasn't social media, there wasn't computers, there wasn't caller ID, the phones were mounted on the walls, and there were typewriters and not computers or anything else and cellular devices. And so uh, back then, you know, th there was just, you know, a lot of runaways and, you know, calls when they come home, there, there wasn't a lot of things to investigate. But see, now there are so many different angles that we can investigate. You know, we can track social media, we can track cellular devices, uh, we have license plate readers throughout uh, Northeast Ohio, you know, hundreds of them where we can track license plates and movements. And, you know, there's a lot of investigative tools. And so, uh, you know, pop culture, yeah, that's a big one because uh, social media has helped law enforcement in so many ways. And in finding missing persons, it's huge uh, because at least we know that they're alive. Okay, that's a good start. And so, uh, that doesn't mean we're going to stop the investigation, but at least, okay, we can take a little bit of a deep breath. Okay, they're alive, they're on social media. Now let's see if we can find them because it may be a human trafficking case. They may be at a, at a place where they don't want to be, um, you know, and then I'll, I'll kind of piggyback off what Jamel said in, in, in terms of human trafficking. Uh, sometimes uh, the, these victims, they don't know that they're even victims. And so, 
Uh, you know, this is the part, again, of emphasizing if you see something, say something. If something doesn't look right or seem right, it probably isn't right. And as law enforcement, I'd rather go on 100 calls today where nothing happened and everything's fine than miss that one call where somebody didn't call where we could have made an impact and saved a life. Our next question is, we put so much needed focus on missing persons cases that we often forget about uh, those who are found and their families that need a lot of mental and emotional support for years afterward and beyond. Gina and Sylvia, how can we better help those who are found and their families? Well, I like to tell families that um, when their missing loved one comes up missing, I like to tell them that that they have to do the interviews so they can, they don't know if their missing loved one can see them. Cause I know when I was in the house, I had a TV and every chance I got to see my parents on TV, it gave me that much more hope. And I got to see everything, like they got to wear different glasses and clothes and I got to see them every chance I can get, they gave me help. So I always tell families to, they have to do the interview so they can give their loved ones more hope because I seen them and it was like, well, if they're gonna fight, I'm gonna fight too. And, and that is the perspective I think that, you know, Gina does bring um, from somebody who was actually abducted, right? Um, we did do the interviews. Social media didn't exist when Gina had gone missing. Facebook was just coming out. In fact, it was called the Facebook and college kids were using it, not kids uh, your age. And, and Instagram and TikTok and all those things didn't exist. And um, so we were, you know, cranking out flyers and that kind of thing. And families do need a lot of support. They're going through a lot of emotions. They blame themselves. They blame other people. They're angry. They're sad. Um, and the emotions can happen within 60 seconds. All those different things are happening. And so we know that families really need that support. And we never want to lose hope of the fact that people... Um, you know, do come home and they come home whole and it just requires that they need support as well as the family. But sometimes, and it's a sometimes, uh, the, the their missing loved one doesn't come home. Um, we had a case um, late spring, early summer, um, the young man and young woman out of uh, Lorraine, Ohio had been missing quite a few months and the family came to us, Nathan's family, for support and help. And um, we were able to provide um, mom and, and um, her family support while they were searching for Nathan. And we'd always said, we know one day we're going to have a case where the person comes home, but they're not going to be alive. And as soon as we said it, it happened. And, and Nathan, you know, was found in Lake Erie. Um, and the family still required support. They required support upon finding out that their missing loved one uh, was deceased. The media got a hold of that and wound up in front of their home. And I want to say within 20 minutes, uh, John Majoy was able to send out an email asking the media to please leave the home and the family would come to our 
um, office uh, the following Friday and give out a statement. And because of that, we were able to buy the family time to just be able to start the initial grieving process. But we're very much still uh, involved with the family and we do provide support to them to make sure um, that they don't ever blame themselves and that they can honor um, who Nathan was as, as a person and, 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 and just you know, the best they can get through each and every day. It's been tough and it is tough on families, whether someone, you know, comes back alive or not, um, whether it's an endangered child, families go through every emotion that you can possibly think of. And, you know, we have to be there to catch them. Gina's perspective is very different though for families. And that's a great thing. How can schools be better equipped to handle missing person cases? Jamal? Well, I, what I would is imagine is for staff to be trained on what to do, for there to be some type of protocol that exists at schools. Um, for their um, SRO, which would be their school resource officer, if a school has one, not all schools have a school resource officers, um, to be engaged uh, with what's going on and for it to be known as soon as it happens, right? And not just chalk it off to so-and-so is just need to take a breather or this is their normal behavior, so we're not going to act on it. So just being really intentional with that and just having um, a protocol or a unified response at that school and then even letting students know what that is, right? Because so many times students know things before staff does. Um, so making the student body aware of what those protocols look like, who they should be, who's a designated person to talk to about if they recognize that their friend or classmate fill in the blank um, is missing or they have not heard back from them or whatever the situation may, may be, would be, I think, super impactful. Chief Majoy. You know, I, I think Jamel's uh, answer is spot on, and uh, she she certainly stated it very well, very very well. So thank you for that. I, I think that uh, as law enforcement, you know, it's about resources, and and the students and the faculty are resources for us. Uh, when we go over the school, you know, we may not know that individual or anything about them, and so we have to rely upon the friends and and their classmates and things like that. Uh, to give us information and, you know, they may have uh, that little piece of information that they don't think is important, but it really may be important. And so I think what Jamel said is that the training for the faculty and staff is important, uh, you know, and if a person doesn't show up for school, you know, now they're required to follow up and notify the parents, uh, which is law, which is wonderful because that way, you know, even if they're, they're truant, okay, but at least the parents are going to know about that. Uh, in, in the event that someone does turn up missing or, or does get victimized or tragically something happens to them, uh, it's important that we have an open line of communication. So I don't think I could have really said any better than what she said. Sylvia, you mentioned Nathan's case where the media had uh, basically cornered uh, the family at their home. Uh, how have, how, uh, this question is open to everyone, how have you seen the role of the media help and other times possibly impede or harm in missing persons cases? I think that's a great question. Um, we love to partner with them, first of all, and it's it's important to partner with them. Um, but as much as they can be your friend, they can also 
um, hurt the case. And so I'll go back to that case. Nathan was found on a Sunday in the water. So it was thought pretty quickly that the young woman he was with was probably there in the water, in the car, but submerged. And so the next day they got the divers and everybody else out there. And unfortunately the media was running it live when they actually pulled the car out. So I think about Oh, good, good golly. While I understand it's an, it's important, I think about the poor family that was looking for their daughter and people, you, they were streaming it live. People from what the actual media was streaming, they were streaming it live. And I think that perhaps the family learned that their daughter was in the car dead. So, you know, you think about those kinds of things. And while they are very helpful. And I will tell you, we are lucky in the city of Cleveland because our local media has been phenomenal in helping get out uh, word about the missing cases. But the flip side of that is, um, you know, it can it can really hurt a family is, is really how I feel about it more than hurting the case. And Chief, you probably can talk to that more because you're an investigator. But I've just seen, you know, if families find something out, it really should be from the investigator or the law enforcement agency letting them know it should never be them getting a picture on media or seeing a card being pulled out of water with a dead person in it. Right. And so I, I do agree with you, you know, and there's some things that they share uh, that are ultra sensitive. And, you know, we try to uh, warn them ahead of time uh, of things like that. Uh, <clears throat> but in terms of the media, what I'd like to share is that um, we have experience. I've been trained on how to talk to the media. I've, I've, I've talked to all of the Cleveland stations. I've been on live television, uh, newscast. I was just on yesterday uh, over a double fatal crash we had here in Newark Heights. And uh, so I, I have that experience and families don't. And so when we called Nathan's family into the center for a press conference, what it did was it took the, the media was basically camping out in their front yard and that's not a place where the, they should be at, but they want the news and they want to get it out there and we have to respect what they're doing. Uh, it doesn't mean we appreciate it. We just means we have to respect it. And so what we did was in Nathan's case is we told them we're doing a press conference and they immediately left the house. And so it bought the family a few days, about five days where they could start to uh, deal with the crisis, you know, they're never going to get closure completely, but at least start to come to grips with things. And then when they came to our center, we were, I was able to sit down with them and brief them and, and talk about certain things that they can expect to be asked from the media. And so basically a quick 10 to 15 minute training session on how to talk to the media. But then at the same time, I went into another room and I talked with the media and I said, these are questions that are out of bounds. We're not asking these questions. And they were very respectful of that. And so, again, they're just doing their jobs. We have to understand that. We have to respect that. We need them to get the word out and they need us to get the word to them. And so when we have that relationship, we can be very, very impactful in, in getting our messages out. But there has to be that mutual respect and understanding. And as Sylvia had noted, uh, we have a very good relationship with the Cleveland media. And when we asked them to put something out, they put it out. Uh, we had a case just roughly a little over a month ago. Uh, there was a 15-year-old girl who was at what we believed to be a drug house, uh, and all signs were leaning that way, uh, but we couldn't get into the house. And so we're putting our heads together, trying to just group think this. And, and I said to Sylvia, I said, let's have Gina write a letter to this girl. It can be very, very short, 
but just what would, if the girl was right in front of her, what would she say to her? And so she did. She put it on paper. She sent it to me. Uh, 15 minutes later, it was in the form of a press release to all the local media. And 15 minutes after that, it was a headline story on all Cleveland news stations. And within less than 24 hours, uh, that girl came home. And that was uh, due to Gina's words because they were powerful. They were impactful. And it sent a huge, huge message out. And you know, the media had a, a significant role in this because if not, they wouldn't have seen this letter. And in the drug house, they did see this and they're like, uh oh, they're on to us. And the girl saw it and it's like, okay, you know, it's time for me to go. And I'm not making the right decisions in my life and I need to get back to my family. And so that's one of the, the big success stories that we've had this year. Wow. Can you all delve more into myths about missing people when it comes to those trafficked, especially? How does it actually happen versus what we've seen on TV? Does social media play a role? And how can the public as well as the media be better equipped to disseminate information about these types of cases? Sure. Um, I'll start. I'll start this one. Um, so I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of relationship building that happens, right? Um, and so the concept and understanding that it is not always wrapped in a stranger danger situation and sometimes very rarely when it comes to trafficking. And just the reality of what trafficking is, is one individual exploiting another individual for either uh, sex for hire or for labor services. And that uh, person is making a profit off of this particular victim. And so you may have someone that comes in as a boyfriend, as a girlfriend, um, that comes in as a friend that's looking out for them um, and is starting to groom them and build that rapport and build that relationship and find out where are they in need in their life and fulfilling those needs. So whether that's money, whether that's a safe place to stay, whether that just might be love and affection, whether that just might be feeling safe, feeling part of a family, um, all those things. Um, and so as they take that time to build that rapport, they also start to introduce other things as well. And so now when that victim now has built that rapport with that, with the, with that trafficker who they don't know is, is a trafficker, this is my friend, this is my boyfriend, this is my girlfriend, this is my fill in the blank um, person. Um, then after a while, well, you know what, I gave you these things, I paid for these things, I provided you these things, you now owe me, or those things were not free or this is what my expectation of you is, or there has been some sort of sexual acts that have happened that were filmed or photographs were taken of it. And if you don't do what I tell you, then I'm going to post this on social media. I'm going to share this with your friends. I'm going to send this to your parents or to your family. There are social media sites um, that traffickers use. They don't have to meet someone also in person, right? They utilize the same platforms that many of us interact with each other on. And so uh, traffickers may also be on um, dating websites as well. And they just send out, you know, messages. And the whole point is to be able to get one person to respond. As long as they get one person to respond and they can start building that relationship, that's what they need. Just take that time. And so Instagram, Facebook Messenger, Kick, um, even gaming apps as well. And so just to clarify that when it comes to trafficking, both sex trafficking and labor trafficking, those, that's what's underneath the umbrella of human trafficking. Um, both women, men, boys, and girls are victims of these things, right? And so anybody that has an Xbox, a PlayStation, any sort of uh, gaming app or um, League of Legends, whatever is cool to be playing um, among us, you name it, 
there anywhere where there's a chat function for somebody to reach out and talk to you. Um, people who have, you know, you know, terrible intentions in mind may utilize those platforms in order to build that rapport and build that relationship. And you don't know who that person really is on the, on the other end. So someone who may be claiming to be a child, a student, um, a peer may not necessarily be that, or they are a peer, um, but they are tasked with recruiting other people for their trafficker. And so when you have those dynamics of dependency and that this person is there for them and that that they have, you know, uh, provided certain things, uh, then you have these these uh, there's something called the power and control wheel. And so in domestic violence, there is a phase that happens. There's a honeymoon phase where everything is nice and good and positive and, you know, there's love and all this kind of stuff that's going on and trust. Then there is a uh, tension building stage where you know things are kind of getting a little bit rocky then there's an explosion where now there's been a change something negative has happened whether it's physical abuse emotional verbal abuse you name it and then back to the honeymoon phase and that just that cycle just kind of repeats similar situations can also happen in a trafficking um, experience as well and so all those dynamics can help also blur the lines of what is happening to this person for them to identify that I'm being trafficked, right? They may just think that I'm in a relationship that is, you know, toxic or that is not okay, or that they've been experiencing certain types of abuses throughout their lives. And so this almost feels normalized um, because of things that they've experienced already. So those, those are some of those dynamics. When you have somebody who may be even a little bit uh, over controlling um, or they are responsible for, you know, providing certain services or that person making money off of them. Um, these are how those dynamics are kind of tied in there. And when you have familial trafficking, it's also a, a, it's, there's a lot of similar things, but there's also some differences where you have children that are being trafficked. And again, they have no idea that, that the abuse that they're experiencing is as a result of a parent, a guardian, an adult, someone else within their household that is benefiting. Uh, from the abuse that they're experiencing as well. So that's kind of where that fits in. And so the question of the social media player role, um, absolutely, right? Um, depending on what someone may post or traffickers that are reaching out and just clicking through and just trying to find, you know, um, a girl, a boy, whoever, depending on what we're putting out there about what we're feeling and experiencing, they're going to utilize any avenue to try to get in front of that individual and start building that rapport. There's been traffickers that literally have just talked to someone for three, four, five months um, with no necessarily red flag that this person is a trafficker, but again, because they're just building that rapport and waiting for that time where that person may now be in a more vulnerable situation. And so with that, when you have also videos of people who are explaining that they have almost been trafficked or that this is what trafficking is and it's instead perpetuating more of these kinds of myths about stranger danger about um abductions that equal kidnapping um about being drugged in a restaurant or these there's just a lot of myths that exist that it only happens to girls it only happens to boys it only happens in foreign countries um that just kind of perpetuates those myths so the more that we share those myths of what's going on that ends up negatively impacting not just um, how law enforcement can investigate and that people can, you know, be aware of the realities, but also victims because they recognize, hey, that's that's not my story, that's not what, what I've experienced. So they don't believe that they're trafficking victims or the concept of you have to be chained up or or tied to to, to something or um, you know, and a lot of times that's not the experience of many trafficked victims. So if that's what in the imagery, if you were to Google you know, human trafficking and you click images, many times you'll see, um, you know, hands with with uh, ropes around it, or you might see, um, 
all types of things like that or a hand over someone's mouth and just understanding that there is a lot a lot broader of an experience um, as well when it comes to trafficking. When the story of the last two years is written, um, it's our hope that the pandemic did not make this situation worse. In this era where children can't um, do basic things that we all did growing up, like playing with the neighborhood kids and interacting freely with others. How has the Cleveland Center for Missing Children seen the COVID-19 pandemic um, affect the type of local missing cases they receive? Well, I think um, I, I would tell you that we've seen an increase. We've um, uh, missing people in general. Last year, we met with uh, Cleveland police. I want to say it was first district, one of the detectives. And he said as a result of COVID, they'd actually even seen an increase in adults go missing. So I would say, unfortunately, um, at first, it's the world that we live in, right? Um, it's it's the nature of what's happening. And social media does play a major role in what's happening and how people um, can get to folks. But the other truth is, as Jomel just so eloquently talked about, it's not always stranger danger. In fact, I would argue it's probably not a lot of that, but it's people that you may know. And we have certainly seen um, a lot of that. We we have very active cases right now where they're all intertwined and um, they're endangered runaways. And unfortunately, um, they go to one of the kids' parents' home who is involved in drug use, gun trade, stealing cars, that kind of thing. So unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of these kinds of things. And I think it is the nature of the fact that you know, COVID hit, kids weren't in school, they were online or uh, learning and they had access to many um, more things online. And because they were home, um, they could be online more. And I think that, you know, with schools being back, uh, depending on where you go to school, they're still staggering hours and you're still spending quite a bit of time online. But again, I want to be really clear. It's not just you know, strangers getting a hold of kids. They're, they have access to not really good people in their lives as well. And they're figuring out how can we get these kids to do things that we need to, them to do. That is a form of trafficking. They're getting them to do things um, in order to get something from them. And in this instance, it was these kids needed a place to sleep. They needed a place to quickly shower. So in order to get those things, they had to go steal cars. They had to move on they were using drugs and selling drugs. So I think I would say we've seen an increase. Great. Thank you all. Um, I think I speak uh, on behalf of everyone watching and tuning in that this has definitely been an enlightening discussion. Aparna? Good afternoon. My name is Aparna Srikanth, a junior at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Today's forum featured a discussion about navigating missing persons investigations in the US. Today joining us were Sylvia Cullen, an, an activist and co-founder of the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and, and Adults, Georgina De Jesus, an activist and co-founder of the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults, Chief John Majoy, Newburgh Heights Police Department, and president of the board of directors for the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults, and Jamel Spurlock, director of Victim Services for, hum for Human Trafficking Initiative. 
Our moderator was Youth Forum Council member Abigail Orisanya. City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T with additional support from the Doris C. Mikalski Trust. We are grateful for their support. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on their website at cityclub.org. You can join them in supporting that network when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. Join us in February for our next youth forum, and thank you for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.